Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. When we press into God's Word, we realize this is not easy. There's nothing easy about this, and and we see it in this text as we continue uh, in our study through the book of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than, and now we begin to see it lived out in very practical ways. Uh, We we come to chapter 13, and it it would be really easy uh, for you just to grab your Bible and read chapter 13 and and look at it and go, oh, wow, Uh, the writer of Hebrews, you know, he writes, wow, this is long. I got to hurry up and get a few things in and just say a bunch of stuff, or he was like down to his last piece of paper, uh, and, and he had to hurry and just write a bunch of things down, and, uh, because it would be easy to just read it and go, oh, it's like, oh, and by the way, and before I close, oh, by the way. But I think he was much more logical and methodic in how he wrote this letter. But we come to chapter 13, and chapter 13 has a lot of very practical things that he's telling these believers to begin to live out. But I think he's done it in such a way that he's laid out the foundation of all the truth that he's going to share. Very quick bullet points, almost like a boxer with with little quick blows and jabs, but every one of them powerful, every one of them landing a very specific blow, but they're short, quick jabs. And, and, And when you look at it, I look and I go, wow, okay, so when we look at the Word of God, when we look at all the 12 chapters that he's written up to this point, he's closing out with some very practical things, how do we begin to live out these great truths that Jesus is greater than, that, that His power is greater than, that His new covenant is greater than, that His blood, His redeeming blood is greater than, and He's called us to run this race with perseverance and endurance, and He just gives a few practical ways that we begin to live out this truth of Jesus. But it's also important to realize that when we study God's Word, There's no division, there's no separation between doctrine and duty. There's no separation between God's truth being revealed to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and the responsibility that we have as believers. Uh, There's no difference uh, when, when we take the truth of God's Word and the revelation of His Word. We begin to live that out because the two always go together. And so the writer has, has laid out this beautiful exposition of who Jesus is, and he's painted this wonderful picture of Jesus, and now he sort of puts a bow on it at the end of his letter, tying it all together, saying, because of all these things that are true, let me just give you some practical life application. And so as we look at this text, it's difficult for me to place myself where these Hebrew believers are. Uh, again, they are Jewish in nature, but they're Christians. They've, they've turned away from Judaism to follow the one true God. His name is Jesus. And it, it's hard for us to understand all that they're experiencing, persecution, ridicule, arrest, imprisonment, isolation, rejection from family and friends and culture. And it's hard to really understand all that they're experiencing But regardless of your circumstance, it's important to just know that as we've studied up to this point, we have this accurate picture of Jesus. And that accurate picture of Jesus is now what carries us through, that we begin to draw closer to Him 
maintaining that accurate picture so that we can then apply his truth. So before we look at chapter 13, I want to give you a couple of practical things um, that, that I believe as we look at this, because again, it would be really easy to just look at it and go, oh, I'm supposed to do this or not do that. And so first, I want to, I want to give us two cautions, two, two specific cautions as we come to the close of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the first caution that I want to share with us is application without interpretation. Application without interpretation. It would be easy to simply grab your Bible and begin to read uh, chapter 13 and, and look at all these things and say, oh, so I'm supposed to do this. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Oh, I'm supposed to do this, right? And, and when, we, when we try to apply God's Word without an accurate interpretation, we, we tend to grab little Bible McNuggets, right? And we put them on shiplap and put it on our wall or we put them on a bumper sticker or we put them on our t-shirts and, and, and we simply grab these little verses that may not really mean what we want them to mean, but we just sort of grab them and we try to apply them without proper biblical interpretation. So we must learn to follow Jesus who is greater than all things. We must understand the context of his word. Pastor Scott says it all the time. Context is critical, right? To understand the biblical context as we study God's Word. Matter of fact, I, I love Dr. Howard Hendricks, pastor, preacher, teacher, professor, uh, years ago did a great book if you want to learn some simple but profound Bible study techniques. It's not just an easy read, but it's very practical called Living by the Book. And in there, he just sort of breaks down the practical Bible study method of observation, interpretation, application. We have to observe the text. Who's writing it? Who are they writing to? What's the circumstance? What's the scenario? How do we interpret what is being said? And then, then with a proper understanding, theologically, doctrinally, now how do I apply that to my life? And so that's just a great truth. Just from a practical perspective, let me, let me just share this. When I was a kid growing up back before the earth's crust was hard, and, and you know, I believe that probably the, the most quoted Bible verse in our culture was John 3.16. Matter of fact, if, if some of you are old enough, you remember Rainbow Man. Anybody remember Rainbow Man? He had the big fro and it was rainbow. And this guy showed up at like every major sporting event. And, and somehow he navigated to these camera angles and he had this big rainbow afro. I've got a DVD on his life. It's kind of interesting. But, but he would stand there with a sign that says John 3.16. I always thought it was John Madden's weight, but it wasn't. It was like actually just John 3.16. Now, when I, when I look at culture, when I listen to culture, I believe the most quoted verse in the Bible in our culture today is Matthew 7, 1. Most of you are going, wow, okay. It, it simply says this, judge not lest you be judged. Completely out of context, we look at it and go, well, hey, it's not my place to judge people. What is the context? What, what is the observation interpretation of the passage of Scripture? Then how do I apply that? Right? How do I live in a world of justice because God is a God of justice? Therefore, God must judge. As believers, we love a God of justice. How do we judgingly, lovingly, discerningly, mercifully discern and judge right from wrong? 
How do we navigate that as Christians? Uh, or the idea of simply loving people, well, we just have to love people. Well, it's true, right? It's true, we're supposed to love people, but here's the question, how do you define biblical love? How, how can you honestly say you love someone if you can't define biblical love? Because culturally, we look at love as, as simply, well, we just need to let them do whatever they want. Well, I'm a dad of three kids, and it was never loving for me to just let my kids do whatever they want. <laughs> hey, Christopher, here's a brand new skateboard. Go out in the middle of the highway and have fun, right? No, why? Because loving, loving someone has boundaries. It has areas of protection, just like God does with us. He gives us boundaries of protection. So we have to understand God's Word properly before we begin to apply God's Word practically. And so here the writer of Hebrews is connecting all of what he has shared so far in this letter. Jesus is greater. His power is greater. His love and salvation is greater. He is the mediator of a new covenant. His blood is greater, which transforms us. And so here at the close of his letter, he simply puts a bow on his, his letter. And he connects, let me take us to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Last week we looked at this verse, and I want to point out some words to you, and I want to tie this part together as we begin this month in chapter 13. Chapter 12, verse 28, the writer says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer, if that word is not circled or underlined, do so in your Bible, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, to, to understand what it is we are offering, we define the word offer. The word in the Greek is actually to serve or to worship. But the root of that word, part of that word in the Greek, is actually a word that, that has to do with servant or menial hired, someone who is hired with menial tasks. In other words, it kind of paints the picture of bringing someone on that has no skills, no abilities. I can't believe you would even hire me, but you're giving me menial tasks. That's the root of that word. So when I come to God, what do I do? I come as a menial hire, right? I bring nothing to the table with a holy, righteous God. But in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His grace, in His mercy, He has created for me through a new covenant, through the blood of Jesus Christ, a way that I could be brought into right relationship with Him. Okay? So that's that understanding. Now, if we jump down to the close then of chapter 13, jump down to chapter 13, look at verse 20, because here's the package. Everything that he's about to share in chapter 13 comes between these two phrases. Chapter 13, look at verse 20. He simply says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip, so circle or equip, that word equip, it's critical, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through, circle or underline the word through, Jesus Christ. Okay, now when we look at this idea, here you have equip. The word equip is really a, a neat word in the New Testament. It means to complete or to prepare. Uh, it, it could be to be fully trained, to be made complete, to be perfected, to be prepared, or to be restored. 
One of the ways that I see it translated, I love in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, it says this. I'll show it to you on the screen. And going on from there, he, that's Jesus, saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. Mending is the exact same word that is used here as to equip. So what we have is this picture of Jesus who takes me with nothing to offer, and what does he do? He trains me, he equips me, he fully prepares me, he restores me, he mends me for his purpose. I love this picture because I could just see James and John sitting in the boat and mending their net. Why are they mending their net? Because it needed mending, right? And so that's, that's what they were doing. They would often wash their nets. They would repair their nets. They would look for any holes in their net because as they would cast the net in hopes of catching fish, if there's holes, right, the, the fish would escape and they're losing, you know, the, their income. What God does with us, he takes us in our nothingness, our menialness with nothing to offer. And what does he do? He restores us. He mends us. He equips us. He prepares us to do what? To be useful for Him. So we offer, we come to Him with nothing. He equips and restores and mends and cares for us and prepares us for the ministry that that He has. But then the other word that I told you to highlight is the word through. Because the idea of equipping through Jesus Christ. The word through is a primary preposition that, that denotes the channel of an act. In other words, it's, it's through Jesus. It's a causal effect that nothing can be done through me apart from the work of Jesus. So the picture is this. I am nothing. I come to Christ in my brokenness and my sin. I receive His grace. I forgive receive his forgiveness, he begins to do a work in me, preparing me, mending me, equipping me to be fully restored and complete, useful for his honor and glory so that he can do something through me. It's important to understand that as children of God. So as, as he moves on, then he creates this picture, right? We come to God, nothing, nothing to offer. So Jesus, the great mediator of this new covenant, now restores me. He equips me. I I am then offering to him my life as an acceptable form of worship and reverence and awe. That ties the end of 12 with the end of 13. And so in between, we have all these things where we begin to live out in a practical way. Now, that leads me to my second caution, And my second caution is simply this, it's the religion of works. Because see, if I simply look at all these things, oh, well, God wants me to do all this stuff, then I miss the point of the loving relationship to which he invites me. And if I simply look at chapter 13 and go, oh, well, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to do that, right? I'm not supposed to do that. Oh, I should do this. And and we simply look at it as a bunch of do's and don'ts apart from the intimacy of the relationship that the writer has just spent 12 chapters building the framework for how I'm supposed to live a life pleasing to God. I do it in relationship with God. I don't do it based on a bunch of rules or a bunch of guidelines, that, oh, if I do this, God's going to be pleased. Hey, if I don't do that, God's going to like me more. No. He loves me. He accepts me in my nothingness. 
equips, restores, prepares. And then what I do is him through me, not based on works, right? Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's not what I do. God is inviting me to be with him. Now, I love this idea of being and doing. And Kenny Luck wrote this book back about 2003. It's called Every Man's God's Man. So ladies right now, do not get mad at me. I'm going to use the word man a lot, okay? But you'll see that number one, he's a men's ministry leader. He's written this book to men. It's called Every Man, God's Man, okay? But what you'll understand is this is true for anyone. It's true of a man. It's true of a woman. And so it's just sort of a parallel. When I first read this back around 2003, it really kind of shifted some of my thinking and how I'm discipling other people, other men. And, and so he simply, in the context of talking about being bogged down in the red zone, for all you football buffs, you kind of understand the context, context of the red zone, right? We're trying to make strides, we're trying to score, we're down there, but, the, but pressure gets tough, right? The idea of being shaken, And so he simply creates a parallel between doing and being because God invites us to be part of his family. He's more concerned with me being his child than doing things for him, right? I love my kids, but I love my kids because they're my children and I want them just to be my children. Come and be with me. I'm not concerned with what you do, just come and be with me. It's the same in my relationship with God. So here's some things that Kenny just lays out. He goes, doing more puts a man in control. Being more puts God in control. Doing more is a safe style for men. Being more is risky. Doing more implies that there's an end to it. But being more is a process. It's fluid and unpredictable. Doing more lets a man pick the changes he needs to make. Being more allows God to reveal the changes that a man needs to make. Doing more requires trying harder. Anybody? Man, if only I try harder. For years I've been telling guys, you've got to quit trying. Just quit trying and start training, right? Part of that came from just what God taught me through this process. Uh, Doing more is about trying harder. Being more relies on training humbly. Doing more engenders spiritual pride. Ouch. Being more produces humility through surrender. Doing more is about correcting behavior patterns. Being more is about connecting with God's character. Doing more attaches to the public persona while being more reaches the private self, the man God wants to reach. You see, God is more concerned with who we are in relationship with him than in what we do because he knows when he has our heart and we're drawn close just in being in close fellowship with him, we will do things in accordance with his character. That's why Oswald Chambers said, God's main concern is that we are more interested in him than in our work for him. So the context of chapter 13 is the idea of finishing your race, running with perseverance, pressing on in the Christian faith. Why? Because of the superiority of Christ in his person and his work. And so he's giving us this picture of a right perspective of Jesus. And when you have a right picture of Jesus, the way we engage practical life matters changes. That's where we close out the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. 
So the second point I want to share with you today, not just the two cautions, but I want you to see that our growth toward maturity in Christ is demonstrated. That's what he's saying. Look, if you get all this stuff, if you have this right perspective, this right picture of Jesus and this relationship that you have with him, it begins to, to manifest itself because you're growing. That's been his challenge, right? Don't drift. Don't turn away. Don't, don't stop growing in Christ. Don't stop meeting together. Continue to grow. And as you're growing towards spiritual maturity, it's going to be demonstrated. How's it going to be demonstrated? The first thing he tells us is verse one, four words, brotherly love. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. There's a lot packed in those four words. Now, he, he's already commended them. If you remember, or you go back, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, he said already, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he's simply saying, guys, let brotherly love continue. Keep doing it. Keep pressing on. It's good. You're loving one another. Keep doing that. And I want to just pause right here for a moment. And I want to say, Southbridge, thank you. Thank you for loving one another well. It's not always easy. Matter of fact, it's a difficult process, but, but you guys have shown Within the body of Christ, incredible love and grace and care and service and love. And I just want to commend you on that. And I want to say, let brotherly love continue. Let, let's keep pushing on. Let's, let's keep doing that. But the author kind of feared that the idea of returning to some form of Judaism may be hindering them, right, from continuing to encourage one another in the faith. You know the process. You're, you're with somebody in, in group life or in worship or you see someone at worship a lot and, and then all of a sudden you don't see them for a week or two weeks or three weeks and all of a sudden what, what's happened? They started to drift. They, they started to drift. Maybe they stopped their spiritual growth. Out of sight, out of mind, right? No. How are we loving the body of Christ? How are we continuing to reach out to the body of Christ to, to restore them, to mend them, to prepare them, to help fully complete them? That's the work that Christ has called us to. So there's, a, there's this balance. And, and when we look at this word brotherly love, it's kind of interesting because it's brotherly love is actually one word in the Greek, and it's, it's a word that you're all familiar with. They're, they make really great cheesesteak sandwiches, right? The city of Philadelphia. Uh, the, word, the words brotherly love are literally the word Philadelphia, and it's, it's two words. It's actually a combination word. It's two words, philos, which is to be kindly disposed or devoted, and adelphos, which is brother. And so this idea of being fully devoted, disposed to loving kindly your brother. And so he's speaking specifically to the family of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So when he's speaking, let brotherly love continue, he's speaking to believers who are trusting Jesus. See, we're not just attending spiritual meetings during the same time slot. We're members of a family. I don't know about you guys, but family's hard, isn't it? Am I the only one that through my life, family stuff is hard? Um, you think of brotherly love. I think of my brother, and I know he loved me, but he also beat me up a lot. 
And so, um, as I was studying this passage, I remembered one time, um, we lived in a small little house north of Illinois, not far off Lake Michigan, and, and uh, my brother and I loved each other, but we, we went at it, you know? Um, he threw a big lead pipe, one of those horseshoe stakes. He threw one of those at me one time. I'm running for my life, and I hear, and it hit me in the back, and I went down, oh, you know, it was like, I know it was slow motion, like some action film or something, but man, that hurt, you know? And, and uh, but my brother always had my back. We would fight, we would disagree. And I remember this week I was thinking about it. I remember one time it's like forever etched in my mind and, and we're, we're fighting and, and uh, he had a little room down in our finished basement and, and uh, man, he clobbered me and knocked me down. And, and I remember the moment so vividly because my back was to him and I was down and I felt like the Incredible Hulk, right? Before he became, what was it? Was it David Banner, Bruce Banner? Yeah, so I, I'm, I was pretty sure my eyes were turning white and I'm turning into the Hulk because I'm angry and I clenched my fist and I came up and in one motion, I just cold cocked my brother. I knocked him. He flipped back over his bed. He landed between the bed and the wall. And you know what I did? I ran for my life. <laughs> I ran for my life. You know, I was probably like 130 pounds, man. Skinny little rail. I don't know where that kid went. He's in there somewhere. But, um, I, man, I ran for my life. And I ran up to my room because that was my safe place. And I locked my little door, you know. A few minutes later, I heard, he's coming up the stairs. I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, please protect me, you know. And this is my brother. And uh, chick, 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 chick. now he's mad. Open the door. No, I'm not going to open the door. You're going to kill me. You know. Well, then he kicks the door. You know, cheap little house. It's got one of those three-panel doors. Poof, he busts a hole right in the middle of my door. And his foot's hanging in my room. Going, open the door, open the door. I said, no, I'm not going to open the door. So he gets his foot out. He kicks the jam of the door, like right over by the thing. He knocks the trim off the door. It comes flying in my room at me. He come in like, man, just, whoo, just whooped on me. A couple hours later, mom and dad come home. You know the story, right? What happened? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Well, how'd that hole get there? There's a hole? How'd, Rob, how'd that hole get there? I don't know, Dave. How'd that hole get there? You know, we're just loving each other, man. It's like, but that, that was our relationship. We're brothers, you know? We're going to defend each other. We're going to care for each other. We were in some difficult situations. My brother, he, he passed, so you'll never meet him. But I think I broke up a fight with my brother in every possible you know, possible sport in, in our nation. Basketball court, baseball, the golf course. I broke up a fight with him and a guy on the golf course. I mean, it's like, you know, he just, he had a temper. And, but we loved each other and we cared for each other through thick and thin. That's part of what families do, right? Listen, the church family is hard. Living with one another as a body of Jesus is hard because we're still sinners, and we bring our baggage to the table, and, and how we work through that stuff is, is really critical. And so he's saying, look, let brotherly love continue. But, but when I look at that, see, I, I look and I go, it can't simply stay in church, right? This brotherly love, it can't just stay there, because now he immediately addresses what I think is an all-too-common error of close church communities that become ingrown, exclusive, and cliquish. 
Because the next thing he says is do not neglect. Four words, let brotherly love continue, but do not neglect. So when I look at this, I've discovered in my life 30 plus years serving in in ministry, and, and one of the things that I've discovered is there is a tension in church. There's a lot of things that bring tension in church life. And one of these things is the idea of how we love and care for those that are here and how we love, care, and reach those that are not yet here. Oh, well, I just want my church to love me. I just want my church to care for me. I just want to do these things that that I want to do in church with my church family. And yet we have this thing called the Great Commission, right? To go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples of people. And so, so there's this tension between, well, I'm just really comfortable in, in my church life and God's saying, nope, I want you to be uncomfortable to go engage lost people. Uh, we have the tension of, of fellowship of the family of God with the ministry responsibility of the family of God. Uh, we have a tension between inreach, how are we caring for those that have identified themselves as, as the body of Christ, and how are we doing outreach, going and sharing the love of Jesus with those that need to know the love and grace of Jesus? How are we connecting people to a strong biblical community for the purpose of discipleship while still reaching out to those that are not yet connected and are striving for, praying for, seeking after what you and I say we have? That's hard stuff. And we deal with it all the time. Now, uh, let me show you one way that it plays out because there's chances are that you walked into this room and you sat down and you were frustrated with somebody that you don't even know. You know how I know that? Because they were sitting in your chair. (laughs) Unbeknownst to them, that's your row and that's your seat. And if they had known better, they wouldn't have done that. And chances are you left and you're watching at home. We love you. Please come back. (laughs) Um, We get in our rhythms and we get in our comforts. I I noticed, other than Ladina, the front row is pretty wide open. There's plenty of space down here, you know. Um, But but there's a tension. Uh, There's a tension when you walk on campus because you look for those that are close to you part of your close family, while at the same time neglecting those that may not be in your inner circle. And now you're thinking, okay, Pastor Dave, now you're meddling. Let's let's just get back to reading Bible verses. But see, it shows in the attitude that we have when we even walk on campus. When you get up on Sunday mornings and you're getting dressed to go on campus, what is your motivation? Is it to get or to give? Is it to be ministered to or to minister to the needs of someone else? And the the true answer is both, right? I want to be ministered to. I love being in the presence of other believers and and singing songs of worship and praise. But at the same time, I, I know I have a responsibility not to neglect, right? To love those, let brotherly love continue, but don't neglect, Don't neglect those that have walked on campus and are sitting in this room, and I want to address you just for a moment right now, and you feel alone. You you are sitting in a room with hundreds of people, and you feel like a stranger. Let me just say I'm sorry. I I, I don't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want that for you. We can say as as a church family, we don't want that for you, but the only way that that doesn't happen is when the body of Christ steps up to not neglect 
So if that's you this morning, I'm, I'm sorry, and I want to do everything I can to help you feel that sense of love and connection that God desires for you. And can I just say that everybody in the room, you are probably no more than 30 feet away from one of those people. If you look around you, someone that you don't know, someone that's sitting in this room, maybe you've seen them before, you don't know their name, don't neglect them, reach out, take the initiative and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. Let him do through you what he desires to do. So, so we don't neglect. It's easy to just go, hey, when we leave this building, don't neglect. And that's true, right? Because the writer of Hebrews is expanding this circle of care. Philadelphia, our close family of Jesus, there are people in here that hey, you, you've been in close relationship with people and you've been sitting in small groups and, and we have other people who hear about the love that we experience in small groups and the relationships that we share with one another and they long for that, but they're not going to seek after that until someone says, hey, why don't you come with me, right? Because we're not neglecting those, we want to reach out and engage those. And, and the campus is a unique place to do that. I, I'm grateful for my small group and, and I remind them regularly, guys, thank you for allowing me not to have to be your best friend on campus on Sunday morning. That you allow me the freedom to, to spread and engage and care for other people. But when we get together and we can share time and we can share stuff, that's awesome. I've walked past pastors and elders and small group leaders and coaches at various times as they're simply loving each other on campus. Hey, brotherly love, we know each other great. And I've literally walked up behind some of our leadership and said, guys, love you, but you need to break it up. This is a unique moment for us to engage those that are unconnected, that feel like strangers on the campus, and it's time for us to go get them. Right? It's a mentality of, yes, we have to love each other. Continue, let brotherly love continue, but don't neglect the hospitality. Right? It's almost as though the writer is commending them, saying, hey guys, great job on that brotherly love thing. Keep it up, but do not neglect. And what does he say? Don't neglect. Don't neglect to show hospitality. So that's your point. B is hospitality, right? First off, we have brotherly love. Our growth and maturity in Christ is demonstrated by brotherly love. Now it's demonstrated by hospitality. How are you learning to express hospitality? Not to neglect strangers. So to do this, the author juxtaposes, here's this word, right? Kind of contrast the, the same base of a word, but in two different directions. Because the same Greek word that is brotherly love begins with the word philos and, and adelphos. Now he uses strangers, which is the Greek word, and it's again a combination word. It's the same beginning, philos. It's the kindly disposed. I'm devoted, but to what? To xenos a stranger, a foreigner. So the same love and devotion that I am to have for those within the body of Christ, he's saying I am now also to have with a stranger or a foreigner, someone that I don't know. And some of you are going, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with that. And that's why he says, right, we only do this as Christ is working in us, and then he works through us. Now you can't do it. I can't do it either but Christ in us begins to push us outside those areas of comfort. Uh, this xenos is actually the same place that we get our, our English word xenophobia, right? Which is the fear of strangers. Now in our culture, it's actually become the hatred of strangers, which is not true, right? 
But as Christians, how do we love the stranger? How do we love and engage the foreigner? And, and so Donald Guthrie in his commentary on Hebrews, he puts this idea of, of Christian hospitality into a more historical context. Let me just share a paragraph from his commentary. He said, in the environment of the early church, it was essential since alternative facilities for travelers were such that Christians would not choose to make use of them. Wayfarers, hostels, where they existed were notorious for immorality. But the New Testament concept of hospitality has a much wider application than this. In the Middle East, hospitality is a means of friendship, and to invite a person to a meal is to extend fellowship to him. I have several dear friends, some that have been over there for years in the Middle East, and, and so much of their ministry is just inviting people in to their home for a meal or going into a place with others for a meal for years, developing the kind of hospitality and friendship where there's a trust where they can share the love and grace of Jesus. And so when you look at this, you, you see sort of how it was supposed to work, right? As Christians, we're extending hospitality to strangers and, and we're extending hospitality to those in the body of Christ, both love for those in the community of faith and those outside serve to extend, in a way, an invitation to come to know the love and the grace of Jesus. This is, this is sort of why back in October, instead of having one big single event trying to get people to church, we created hotspots all around Raleigh to do what? To engage our neighbors. Wow, what a unique mission field. The people that we live next to 365 days a year, why don't we get to know them? Why don't we invite them to our yard? Why don't we invite them to our driveway? Why don't we invite them to our home and simply engage them with hospitality so we can do what? Convey to them the love and the grace of Jesus. Now, we can't leave this verse without sort of tackling the elephant in the room because he says... <laughs> Um, that do not neglect, back to verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Interesting American church culture, we're, we're sort of fascinated with the spirituality of things, and we focus more on, on angels than strangers. <laughs> but again, let's understand who is reading the letter. These people are Hebrews, they're Jews by blood. They know the stories. They know the story of Abraham. They know the story of, of Moses. They, they know the context. And, and in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham entertained three men. He hosted them. He was hospitable to them. He served them a meal. He referred to them as the Lord and two angels. In chapter 19, the two left after God was talking about destroying Sodom. The two angels went on then into the city of Sodom and yeah, are you Lot? Yeah, we're here to stay. And he took them into their home. The neighbors and the guys in the community came banging on the door saying, hey, we understand you got a couple of strangers in there. Send them out so we can have our way with them. Lot, in all his great glory and honor to the Lord, said, nope, I'm not giving you those guys, but I got a couple of daughters I'll send out. Meanwhile, the strangers, the, the angels, open the door, grab him by the nap of the neck and yank him back in the house. These are angels. 
right? And so these readers would have understood some of this context. They would have understood Gideon in Judges chapter 6 or Manoah in Judges chapter 13 who have encounters with an angel of the Lord. But, but that's not primarily what he's talking about. Yes, you may entertain someone and be hospitable to someone who could potentially be an angel of God. But this word angelos is actually a word called messenger. So it's not necessarily, I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's not specifically related to an angelic being. It could be related to a messenger. So as I take someone into my home, I have no idea who this person is. Now, understand again, cultural context, these people were being persecuted. These people were being arrested for their faith. So the idea of taking a stranger into their home, they could have very well been taken in one of their enemies. Or they could be taken in a messenger of God. You pour your life into someone, you have no idea who they are. You have no idea what God has in store for them. Perhaps they become a missionary and go overseas and reach thousands of people and God uses them greatly. Maybe they, they step into uh, vocational ministry. Maybe they simply step into work and, and see their work as a mission field and, and their life has changed because of your hospitality and pointing them to Jesus. But you were hospitable and you pointed them to the Lord. You have no idea. And he's simply saying, look, guys, listen, you extend hospitality. You have no idea who you are loving in the name of Jesus. Just do it. Next, then the writer expands his circle yet one more space. In verse 3, he simply says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. He extends this concentric circle of love and care one more space to those who are in prison, to those who are mistreated. They have to understand, again, contextually, many of those that were imprisoned were part of their church family. They may have been part of their small group last week. Now they've been arrested, they're imprisoned. They've been beaten. They've been flogged for naming the name of Jesus Christ. He says, don't, don't forget them. Don't neglect them. And, and, and when he says, since you are also in the body, this is not a, a word relating to the spiritual body of Christ. It's related to the physical body. In other words, because you understand the pain of physical hurt and ailment, because you understand the pain and the anguish and the torment and, and the sufferings emotionally, physically, spiritually, because you still experience that, experience that with them. You know what it is to be hungry. When you see someone hungry, you extend love to them because you know what it is to be hungry. When they're hurting emotionally and they're, they're drawn up and they're in tears like they want to get in the fetal position, you step into that situation with them because you understand the hurt with which they're dealing. And you step in and you love them with concern. That's what he's talking about. He says, with concern, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He's pushing them not just from the body of Christ, the Philadelphia, not just to the strangers, the Philozenes, right? But now he pushes them out to those that, that would sort of be marginalized. The, those in culture that most of us probably don't want to be seen with or, or hang out with. The marginalized, those in prison, those that, that are, are being marginalized. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Jesus changes everything, doesn't he? Uh, when Jesus came, in his day and age, the religious leaders would have praised Jehovah God for three things. 
Praise God, I am not a woman. Praise God, I am not a child. And praise God that I am not a Gentile. Where did Jesus go? He went to the marginalized, didn't he? He he went outside the city gates where those, quote, religious leaders never would have gone to do what? To heal the leper, to heal the blind, to touch those that were untouchable. He engaged women and loved them. He engaged children, suffered the little children to, to come unto me. He engaged Gentiles. What did did he demonstrate for us? He demonstrated how to step into the lives of those that are marginalized with love, with grace, with dignity, with honor. Oh, but he went to to a sinner's house. He went to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Yeah, he did. Why? Because they were marginalized from the religious people. Why? Because they were all drawn up. We We got our little holy huddle over here. We got our clique over here. We We don't want them. So what did Jesus do? He said, I'm going to just go get them. But never compromised. With love, with grace, with compassion, with mercy, he stepped in to love the marginalized of society. And as he's setting up the rest of our text in Hebrews 13, that's exactly what he says. We love our church family. Continue, guys. Keep doing a great job. But don't neglect the strangers. Don't neglect the marginalized. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, let me just want to ask you a question. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Have you come to know Christ? Do you need to know him? I invite you to come to know him personally this morning. We'd love to have that conversation with you. I want you just for a moment just to identify where you are in that process of, of learning to love those that are outside your circle. We need to love them well. Maybe your challenge this morning is to learn to love them better, to to learn to love them well. But then immediately, four words, to love one another well, but then then the rest of the thing goes on to how how do we not neglect everyone else? What is your next step this morning? As God is challenging your heart with his love that you have received, what is he leading you to do? How is he pushing you outside? Father, this morning, Teach us what it is to convey your love. As children of the Most High God, having received redemption through this new covenant, through a better covenant, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our mediator, Lord, will you push us outside our comfort zone to to love the brethren, but to love, God, those outside, to convey your love, your goodness, with hospitality and with care. God, push us, push us and stretch us to be more like you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.